Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Kirsty Nordstrom. Kirsty moved to Nashville in the summer of 2021 after graduating from the University of Tennessee at Martin with a degree in Family and Consumer Sciences. She's a developmental therapist coaching parents that have children with developmental delays and has recently begun volunteering with Awake, which is Advocates for Women's and Kids Equality. While Kirsty feels she is constantly in a questioning phase, trying to find long-term career goals, her desire is that whatever she does, she wants to inspire people to look for what is true and ultimately good about their children, partners, community, and self. Good morning, Kirsty, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hi. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here. I have known you for actually quite some time. I know. That's so wild to think about, honestly. I think about you often, though. You've changed my life in many ways. <laughs> that is so sweet <laughs> to say. Uh, I met Kirsty uh, when she was in high school, and we do something. Um, we participate at, at the local high school where she did part of her high school education, something called the National High School Ethics Bowl. And uh, Kirsty, who's incredibly smart, and um, she was a joy to have on the team. And that's when we first met. Oh, my goodness. I think about Ethics Club often. I think so much of Ethics Club itself taught me to think through things in a way that I never would have. And so, yeah, even now when I think through what I believe, what I think to be good, true, whatever, I think about what you taught us in Ethics Club, and it helps me so much. I mean, you have no idea. That's music to my heart because I just, I absolutely love, I love young people. I love high school students, college students, and I really enjoy being a part of those conversations because, of course, I learn so much. And my goodness, you know, high school students span the gamut, but Kirsty, you as a high school student, you're so, I mean, you're still so bright. You were so bright and um, interested and interesting. And so it was so fun to have you in that club. Thank you. That means so much. Thanks. Thank you. Wow. Sure. Well, let's talk about work because that's what we're going to do on this podcast. Tell us what was your first job? So my first job was a short one. And uh, for negative reasons, <laughs> um, but I worked at a coffee shop and um, I was really excited to work there. Actually, I was very excited. I went in and I was like, I'm excited to be here. I want to work here and I want to work hard and like give back to the community. And I ended up only being there for about three months. It was partially because I was going to be studying abroad that fall that I left. And then also just due to uh, some management things that weren't really sitting right with me. But I got to have some experience at least. So that was good. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that because I don't wish negative experiences on anyone, but we all do have them. And for it to only be three months and when you're young. Um, again, I don't want anybody to be in these terrible circumstances. And it doesn't matter how old you are, the duration, it could be very damaging. I, I know that it's psychologically harming and sometimes physically harming because what that stress can do to us. Um, so what did that situation teach you? Or what did you learn? I think what I learned from that situation was in part that I should probably speak up a little bit more at that point. 
I was pretty insecure about my voice. I knew I had one, but I've been learning that it's okay to share it and maybe call people out slightly if you don't like how they're talking to you or treating you. And instead of doing that, I internalized a lot of it and I would cry and just feel stupid and wonder why my work wasn't good enough. And yeah, so I think I learned that it I should probably speak up a little bit more. And I don't think I could have at being who I was at that time. But moving forward, I definitely try to speak up a little bit more for myself and for others if I feel like they shouldn't be spoken to in a certain way. That experience is unfortunately all too common where we internalize somebody else's bad behavior. Because uh, I think it's the truth that I mean, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I think you are too, that mostly people show up, they want to do a good job. Most people are hardworking, they're honest. And so when we find somebody who, you know, is that whole gaslighting thing, we think, oh, well, what's wrong with me? Why am I not good enough? There's got, it's got to be me. Why would someone be treating me this way? Mm-hmm. It is, it's all too common. It's unfortunate because somebody else's bad behavior is entirely about them and not about us. Yeah. And I'm glad that I've been able to learn that. It's just, again, at that time, I hadn't learned that lesson. And so it went inside me a little bit more. Yeah. Well, it is unfortunate that your first experience was negative. I I talked to a lot of people about their first experience and I love, (laughs) obviously when it's positive, because it sort of gives them a a rubric of, you know, to judge other experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose the negative does that as well. It's like, well, you know, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think it definitely, it, it made a lot of experiences that maybe other people thought were bad seem really good. I think <laughs> like, I just remember going to my second job after that and, and my boss being like, oh, if you ever have a question, please ask. And I was like, "Are do you mean that? I said, do you mean that when you say that? Because I asked questions at my other job and I got responses like, what do you think? And um, which that's fine. I'm okay with reflection questions, but they weren't reflective questions. <laughs> and And she was like, oh no, please ask. I would rather you ask us and do something correctly then us have to redo something or uh, you just feel lost and confused and do nothing at all. So uh, I remember being told that and I felt like relieved because I was like, oh my goodness, I can ask a question and I have lots of questions. (laughs) You know this, I I love to (laughs) ask questions. And so to feel like I couldn't ask them was felt weird. I I want to know, uh, especially if I'm unsure. So yeah. (laughs) Tell us the rest of your work history. What else have you been up to? So uh, the second job I went to, I worked at the library during college, and that was a wonderful job. It was very calm, and I got to learn to work with people, but also it wasn't super intense. Honestly, as I'm talking, I think I've had a very privileged work experience. I don't have many bad experiences at all so far. But that was a wonderful job. And then right out of college, I worked uh, at a mental health 
just nonprofit essentially as a case manager. And so I had a caseload of children. My team there, amazing, wonderful people. I had a supervisor who advocated for me and she was wonderful. But the reason I left that job was because I wanted to build deeper relationships. And I started feeling like the uh, the thing that comes with a nonprofit is having to meet numbers so you keep your grant sort of thing. And I started feeling I was being insincere, just doing cold calls. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. And so I left, but it was nothing because of the supervisor or anything. And then I have my current job. Tell me about your your last supervisor. What was good about her? What, what did she do that resonated with you? So similar to that experience at the library, she was very open to questions. And I don't know why that means so much to me, but I think just someone that allows you to be unsure and learn is really important to me. And she was always like, I may not be able to get back to you right away, but if you have a question, if you need something, you have me and you have your whole team, and we are always open to answering questions, even if you've forgotten, because there was a lot of paperwork. There was a lot of things we had to do, and she would just never treat us like we were dumb because we had a question, and she also was really great about telling us to take off work and take time for ourselves because we were working in the mental health industry and that sometimes it's really hard. You have children that are in crisis and it, you need to take off sometimes. And so she dealt with us in a way that was holistic and addressed all of us, not just, Hey, you need to do this for the company. And I really appreciated that. It just strikes me as so human, right? And you know, when we treat the people around us, as human, it's it's uh, no wonder that people are going to perform better, are going to feel better. And I love it when people leave an organization, not because they are just cut up inside from being mistreated, but that they're looking for a new opportunity. They want to do something else and they leave on good terms because why? Because of how you're treated. If you're treated well and respected, I mean, what else is, I mean, what else are we supposed to be doing in life, but treating each other well? Oh yeah. I seriously, I, again, I think that's why I'm privileged because I have not had to really truly leave a job because it was just horrible. It's really been me seeking other experiences and other things. So tell us about your current job. So my current job, I work as a developmental therapist. And so I'm my company is contracted through TEIS and anyone who lives in Tennessee may know that it's the Tennessee early intervention system. And I go in to homes and I coach parents on how to maybe change the way that they engage with their child to promote better learning, especially if they have uh, diagnoses or uh, delays that are causing them to fall a little behind on those milestones. Are you enjoying that work? Yeah, yeah, I do really enjoy it. I I think <laughs> I think I'm always trying to figure out what is for me, but this has been a wonderful learning experience. I never thought that I would coach parents 
And here I am. And I think it's been a great experience for me to learn those skills of teaching someone who may not want to be taught. And so that's been a great experience. So how do you do that? I mean, I come across this all the time because my whole business is about addressing conflict and people come up to me and say, oh, you know, you must have no uh, end of clients because everybody has conflict. And I think, yeah, but people don't want to, I mean, it's not that they don't want to address it. It's, it's psychologically difficult for them. And I know I remember what it was like being a parent of small children and how for me, psychologically difficult it was. So, so how do you, how do you teach parents who are in a hard circumstance? Ooh, I, okay. So to start every person is different and I have to go into every situation being fully aware of that. And Something that my supervisor always tells me if I'm having difficulty with a parent is she says, Kirsty, she's like, what do I tell you? Their house is on fire and they're drowning. And she's like, so what can you do? And it's like, okay, true. So once I think about that, imagine you're sitting with someone in their home and it's on fire and they can't breathe. And so what are you going to do after that? The first thing I do usually is just listen to them because what they've been, they've been given the royal runaround of trying to figure out what's going on with their child, uh, their pride and joy, what they love more than anything, their heart outside of their body, right? <laughs> and so I have to just listen. And even if I don't agree with them, I have to, I usually will find a way to validate that because they deserve that. And someone's not giving them that, especially if they're being mean to me. So <laughs> I try to validate their experience as a baseline because it's important and it's their own. So that's where I start always. That is really important. I mean, it sounds so profound to sit and listen. There's not enough listening. We... I, I'm certainly guilty of wanting to fix and wanting to talk and sit people down and say, this is what you need to do. And I'm trying to unlearn that fix it part of me so I can just be present for the other person. Because as you said, it's their house, it's their circumstance, it's their child. And you are privileged to come in to be a part, to try to lend support, but it isn't your house and you're not drowning and it's not your child. And to be aware of that. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's can be hard sometimes, but I think, I don't know. I, I've had moms just start crying being like, I thought I was doing everything wrong. And I get to be the person that says, you're not, you're not, you're just being a person. And and it's hard to be a person sometimes. And and it's so wild because just that listening and sitting with them can sometimes shift to where they're so much nicer to me and they want to learn and they're ready to learn. And yeah, it's it works so far. <laughs> this weekend, I was talking to my husband about um, something that we had heard and I was reminded of this passage that says, he who has ears, let him hear. And so many times we have a message that we want to give to people, but if they're not ready to receive it, what are we doing? We're, it's selfish instead oh, of yeah. speaking into that person by 
not speaking, by helping them get ready to receive? Yeah, I think a lot of my training when I first started my job was about that. It's like you're preparing the family to be able to teach their child. You're built, it's, we call it building capacity. We're building their confidence. The point is to show the parent that they already can teach their child. They just aren't seeing the ways in which they're teaching their child. And so to show them that they are doing good things. And a lot of our work is built on reflection and showing them that they can do it because at the end of the day they're going to have their child forever i'm not going to be with their child so we need to prepare them to have those listening ears and the best way to do that is build that confidence and show them that they can do it yeah absolutely Uh, so you are volunteering with awake yeah, so I've only been to one meeting, okay. but I I wanted to see if there was a way I could advocate within my community, and I think I'm a pretty opinionated person, and I've worked really hard to get past a fear of conflict to share those opinions, and I I. Th- feel like it is something I'm skilled at, even if it feels scary to potentially run into conflict by sharing. And I found uh, Awake or advocate Advocates for Women and Children Equality or Kids Equality in Tennessee. And essentially what they do is they uh, get volunteers that lobby for different bills that are passing regarding women's Uh, health and rights and children, how they are treated or just anything that would affect a child, um, those bills. And then they also address a lot of bills regarding assault or abuse and things like that. And so they invite people to go to the government and just essentially be a face because they have someone who does the research and says why they think they should... uh, pass the bill or not pass the bill, but they need those people to support and say, hey, we agree that this would be a good thing or we disagree that this would be a good thing. And I feel like it's a good starting point of being more vocal and showing my face on what I think to be good. Christy, several things that you have said sort of sits with what I hear when I, there's all this talk about what it's like to be a boomer or Gen X or Gen Z. And a lot of what you hear about with uh, Gen Z, your generation, is this real emphasis on being mission-minded and doing work that matters to the individual. Do you think that is unique to your generation, or is it more just a sort of a zeitgeist change and everybody is more interested in that? What, what do you think? Ooh, that's a great question. I, hmm. I don't think it is only my generation that is mission-minded. I think that things are just coming up more that are allowing people to be more vocal. And so I think I've seen plenty of air quotes boomers or millennials or Gen X that are being more vocal because the situations and issues that are being brought to the table are kind of getting a little bit more serious. And so people who may have been less 
sure of themselves to speak up are like, okay, we need to say something now. So I maybe we're just a more opinionated generation. I don't know. I that I don't think it is just us that cares about things and issues. I agree with you. I mean, I think that's that that sounds right to me. So when you think about what, you know, what a boomer likes or Gen X or Gen Z or whatever generation we're talking about, and you see in the different generations, um, there's a lot of talk about what somebody in their 60s is wanting from work or in their 40s or in their 20s and in between. What do you see? Do you see the people that you have worked with that are older, that they think about work differently and want different things? Or what is your experience? I I don't know if I view things generationally, so I don't, I do, but at the same time, I'm not sure if I do or if I think of it more personality. I will say the people that are older on my team have stayed at their job for a long time. And that I think is different because for me, I don't see myself staying at this job for a long time. I just don't. And it's not because I don't have loyalty because I believe I'm a very loyal person. I I just want to try more things. And the idea of being at one place for 30 years feels so long (laughs) and and I just don't know that I have that in me so that may be generation based and it may also be that there were fewer opportunities and they got comfortable in that space where they were and so why leave it but for me I feel like sometimes the world is open to me and that could be a good or a bad thing right (laughs) That's interesting because I agree with both things that you said that, I I mean, I'm not, when I look at generations, I think, oh, I don't know how much there is to that. I think it is personality based. And yet, I think there are more opportunities. And I do see people in your your generation move around a lot more. I'm not sure why. I mean, people people who study this might be able to say, but I, I I do think that is interesting, this desire, which I think is very admirable. So when you talk about, you know, Generation uh, Z as, I don't know, all the negative things that people say about Generation Z, I think, well, goodness gracious, uh, they're so adventurous. And all the things that you learn from going, starting a new job, being there for a few years, looking for another job, you know, you just learn so many skills. And I think that's very much to be admired and desired at a workplace. Uh, Well, I hope so. (laughs) because that is uh, certainly going to be me or uh, that is certainly my goal because I I feel like I'm always trying to figure out what it is that I want to do. And if I had found a job when I got right out of college and stuck with it, I wouldn't have known that I want to be more vocal and then found something like uh, a wake that I'm volunteering for. And so I I feel like there's more fluidity than being at one job can allow sometimes. 
I know that a lot of employers, of course, want their workforce many times to come and stay for a long period of time for a variety of reasons, uh, institutional memory, uh, the more you do something, the more you do an event, more than three, you know a couple of three, four or five times, the better you get at it, stability. What would keep you at a job for five or 10 years? Can you imagine what those conditions might be? I I don't think I've found it yet. So I can't really imagine what those would have to be. I think I would have to certainly feel like I am using my voice in some way. And I think, too, I have a desire. Honestly, (laughs) ethics club is something that I feel inside of me to where I want to do that in some way to teach people to think critically to I think our generation goes back and forth between you can't do anything and then you need to do everything and and I want to make that more tangible of okay maybe we can't change the federal government by tomorrow but have you ever looked at what's happening in your town ever you think you can't do anything but what happens in your town matters too and i would love to i don't know spark that in younger children so i'm always kind of seeking a path to where i can maybe move toward that i never thought i'd be a teacher but who knows guys you might see me one day <laughs> you might see me one day being a teacher we'll see what happens um but yeah i think it would have to be a job where i feel like I am influencing critical thinking and involvement because I think that's really important rather than just sort of, I don't know, I don't want to call people complacent, but sometimes I think it's easier to to not think mm-hmm. than it is to think about things. I think that with, um, with technology and just really the advent of um the daily news, it can be overwhelming, right? And yeah. despair can set in. What am I supposed to do about all the tragedy, the war, the famine, the the environment, the sweatshops? I mean, it's so heavy. As you said, I can't change the federal government. I can't change what's going on at the World Bank or, or whatever. And so the adage, which has helped me, is think um, globally, act locally. But... Mm-hmm. But acting locally, I think that it's just sort of like the Instagram, uh, what happens with Instagram, right? So we look at all these beautiful things and we say, I'm not going to judge myself based on all of these curated photos. You know, we know it's like it's the hundredth (laughs) photo that gets posted of this person. Oh, I woke up this way or whatever, you know, it's all it's a fake, you know, and even when people are trying to do the get ready with me in the morning, like the, the, the real ones, they're still like this seems like this curated effort, right? So it's still, I think it can be overwhelming. At least I know I suffer from this and crushing to think about the the problem seems so big, even in my small little town, what am I going to do, right? Mm-hmm. And in my small little town, what about the entrenched powers? Because in this little town where I'm an outsider, even though I've been here 20 years, it seems the politics seem pretty entrenched. Um, It can just, I do suffer from falling into despair. So we need voices like you to say, no, Mary, wake up. You don't have to do that. 
what about doing this little thing? And what about doing this little thing? And you do, you do, you go into the school and you do, you did ethics club. And that, that is what I'm talking about. It's inspiring people to get involved and to see that the weight of doing something where someone might be like, oh, I don't want to go in the school and do ethics club, but you did. And it's giving people a voice and a way to think about things and to think further than the statement that is just given to think deeper below the statement. And I do think it is so overwhelming. It is very overwhelming for me too. And so I think, so I I read an essay by Wendell Berry called Think Little, and it's my favorite essay I have ever read. And sometimes when I get overwhelmed, I just go back and read it. And I remember that you have to start somewhere You absolutely have to start in your family with yourself and then things will build out further. And you have to think little, even though media makes you feel like it's you need to change the government, right? If you have a bunch of mean people around you, those people will eventually go up into government. So you have to start small so it can ripple, right? (laughs) Because there's only mean people in government. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, but it, it, I feel like that's what's created in the media, though. So though I'm being uh, hyperbolic, that's how media communicates things all the time is that everyone's the worst person ever. And I don't think that's true. <laughs> so uh, thinking small maybe will restore faith in humanity, too. So you are less overwhelmed. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's exactly the work that you do um, in your day job, right? You go, it's one family at a time. It's Mm -hmm. one child at a time. It's one sitting down with another life person at a time. And it's, we can get tricked in thinking, you know, what is this one grain of sand going to do? But that's all we have. I mean, we are human persons situated in time and place, in a place, in a time, and the differences that we make. Uh, we can do it for good or for ill, but but we can choose. And that that's where difference, I think, really does happen. It's in the local. It's in the embodiment. And that's one reason I left philosophy, though. I, you know, I love teaching to go into workplace conflict because I think, gosh, when our workplaces, like think about your first environment, right? If that was what you were living in day in and day out and you needed that job to pay your mortgage or feed your kids, it's hard to leave that kind of toxic environment and go home and be healthy. You could be a healthy person in that toxic environment, but it's really hard to live that kind of gaslighting. And my my little vision for my corner of the world is to try to help people, much like you're doing, giving them tools, because I can't fix people's problems and that's not appropriate, but trying to equip people to know you can and you already do hard things. Mm-hmm. And you can speak up for yourself and you don't have to take this disrespect and you can make a difference. And if you can kind of clean up somebody's polluted little work environment, they're going to be happier and healthier. And then that will trickle into their home environment and into their community. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love that. And I love the part about giving people a voice because I think something got convoluted somewhere where saying what you think means you're a mean person. And I think... I think uh, being able to teach people like, hey, you can say, don't talk to me like that. And it doesn't make you bad. 
Right. I think women suffer from that a lot too. I mean, I think people in general suffer from that. Uh, but certainly women have a double stigma because, oh, she's the caller a name or she's difficult instead of she's just saying, this is my boundary. You know, don't speak with, don't speak to me like that. Or, you know, hey, let's do something different. And we think, oh, well, you know, I, I so mm-hmm. I think it's retraining people that when you speak up for yourself, you, you are actually not only helping yourself, but you are helping other people. And, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. We need people to show others, Hey, it's not only okay, but you ought to treat yourself well. Yes. I think that's, what's great about, uh, your company and what you're doing too, is you get to be a model of what it looks like to do that. I think, I I try to model that as well. And I tell parents that they are advocates for their children. If they say something to me that's like, hey, I would rather you not word it that way. It makes me feel like you're calling my child stupid or it makes me feel like you are lessening their skill. That would never be my intention, but they're advocating and they're speaking up, which is something they may not have done before. So I either clarify, but I apologize nonetheless because they spoke up and I let them speak up. So being a model is so, so important because they learn, okay, that's one person who didn't reject my advocating for myself. So maybe there will be others who won't reject it too. I love that. And I love this idea of, because we talk a lot about intention, you know, people say, well, my intentions were good, but... And I think that it is important to pay attention to intentions, but be aware of that. So if I intend, let's say in the workplace, I when I speak up and say, hey, don't say that, and I hurt somebody or I offend somebody or they are offended or they are hurt, to be open to have a conversation. This is my intention. Maybe the way that I came across you thought you, you thought was gruff. Hey, let's talk about this. What's the better way to communicate in the future if um if something happens that is uh, that I want to address, what would you prefer, right? And open those dialogues. So even when we learn to stand up for ourselves, you know, I think it's always good to to care for the people around us. And caring doesn't mean state being silent, but it also doesn't mean being brash mm-hmm. and saying everybody else has to. I'm caring for everybody, and you have to listen to me. Is you know learning how to communicate with all the different kinds of people that we encounter. Mm-hmm. It's very personalized. It's ha ha. Human communication is very personalized. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> you know, because in your training, right, you you get trained that not one size fits all, and yet there are some standard good practices. Mm-hmm. Right. These are these are the sort of rubrics that you should fall under. And I think the one of the first things you opened with is that every, you go in thinking this is an individual situation. Mm-hmm. And I think holding space for both those things, that these are some good practices, but this is an individual person. And I'm going to have a conversation, not with a theory, but with this person right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think things are almost never one thing. And it's a lot easier if they were just one thing, but they aren't. And so I don't always do it well. Uh, the example I used of personal experience. And I, in my mind, I was doing it to be gentle, but I had to see that culturally from where she was coming from, she said where she's from, that is considered calling someone stupid. 
And I, so I changed the way I said it and, um, and apologized. And so I had to use two things. And the great thing too, is my work has a grievance policy. So I always tell them, feel free to say it to me first, but if you feel like you can't say it to me, you can say it to my supervisor. And that's been scary, but great because it gives a space for them to say it. And, um, so I have that principle or like main guideline that I get to use. And then I have to address them based on who they are. And it's kind of hard, but <laughs> it works out. <laughs> Christy, I have never heard somebody say with a smile, if this doesn't work out, if we have a grievance policy, this is the person that you can talk to. I love that because that's exactly what it should be. But Many people, when they hear grievance, I think the principal has come in, this person's going to be punished and they're on their way out instead of a real a real world way to give people a voice, to solve problems, to try to accomplish the mission instead of this punitive, heavy handed. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I first heard about it, I just would kind of tell parents like, oh, this is just part of our policies. And then I started to realize I would rather them tell me directly rather than go maybe behind my back or if they didn't like something, because how else can I be better for them or or learn if they just go tell? So I started clarifying with them, hey, by the way, you can tell me first. I'm okay with hearing feedback and then go from there. So Christy, when you think about the future of work, What do you think needs to happen to help usher in healthy work environments for people? Oh, hmm. I I would like to say that I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if I've been in enough jobs to know what should happen. I think that at a baseline, something that my current supervisor does really well is give feedback. She always says something that I'm doing well and something I could improve on always and I think it becomes because of the model that we follow is to give positive feedback to parents and build their capacity and she sort of took that on within her leadership to where if I do something when she's supervising me she'll always say I really liked that question you asked that parent that led them to reflect And then sometimes she'll ask me what I did well or what I could have done better before she even gives me advice because we are our own worst critics. And I feel like if other jobs, not just ones that deal with families, did that, people might feel more confident in their own work because they already know what they didn't do well. So I would love to see more feedback, (laughs) positive feedback in work environments. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. I agree with you. Well, Kirsty, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, of course. It was so good to see you. Oh, so good to see you and so fun chatting with you. Yes. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. What an absolute delight to talk with you today, Kirsty. Thank you so much for your time. On this podcast, we talked about Kirsty's experience with the Ethics Club, which is also called the National High School Ethics Bowl. If you are interested in this organization, there's also one at the collegiate level called the Intercollegiate Ethics Bowl. I encourage you to find them online. It's a wonderful organization with thousands of students participating every year. 
Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services. I'm your host, Mary Brown. If you have questions or if there's a particular guest you would like to see on the show, please let me know. You can find us at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.